Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and let's return to our verse-by-verse study of the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18 is our text this morning. The worst kept secret in the world is that we live in a world that's known for its disunity. In fact, it's almost frightening to turn on the television or read the headline of the newspaper every morning for fear of what might have happened overnight. It seems that the entire culture is descending into chaos and it seems to grow worse every day. We have factions in political parties. We have all sorts of political disagreements, even here in our own city. We have family arguments, parents versus children, siblings versus siblings, husbands versus wives. We have animosity among the religions, the Hindus and the Muslims, the Muslims, the Christians. There's racial strife and unrest, such as what we saw in Missouri and Baltimore recently. There seems to be an ever-rising disunity among the social classes, the rich and the poor, the educated and uneducated, unions versus management. And to some degree, it's always been that way, but it seems to be growing worse all the time. The question is, why? I'm so glad that we have a Bible, aren't you? We have answers there. And let me just read to you what James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's an important question. James answers it. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James seems to indicate that the source of all the conflict in the world is sin. And there is a solution to all of this, this unity, and it's found in our text this morning. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you have formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near." For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, Paul crystallizes and distills all the world's divisions and enmities and hostilities into two categories, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, of course, being God's chosen and covenant people, the Gentiles being all the other races of the world. And he describes the problem of both here in the book of Ephesians and also in the book of Romans. The Gentiles problem is described very succinctly in verses 11 and 12. He says that 
We were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants and the promises. We were hopeless, and in essence, we were godless. That's, that's some big problems. But it wasn't just the Gentiles who had problems. He says the, the Jewish people who were entrusted with all these covenants and promises and hope and nearness to God, they were to take those blessings and be a conduit, the vessel by which God's blessings and mercy would flow to all the nations of the world. But instead, what happened? They turned inward. They isolated themselves by and large. They failed to produce the good grapes that God called for in Isaiah chapter 5. And so we have two groups of people, both at odds with God and at odds with one another. And then Paul says that now Christ is the solution. He is our peace. Now, now God's word could not be any clearer at the point of racial reconciliation. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 I believe is a synopsis of all the gospel and certainly all the book of Romans. It simply says, for there is no partiality with God. There is no partiality with God. And he's speaking specifically there as it relates to Gentiles and Jews. There is no partiality with God, but dear ones, we must admit there is sometimes partiality in God's church. And brothers and sisters, it ought not to be. It goes back as far as the book of Acts when the apostle Peter, who was chosen by Christ himself to lead the church, manifested racial disunity and disharmony and out and out prejudice. Peter believed that as a Jewish person, he was part of God's chosen people. He did not understand that the gospel was for all nations. So God had to confront him, had to rebuke him. He had to humble him. And he did so through a number of means, one of which was a vision that he had. Remember when he was resting on the roof in that little village of Joppa, the Lord sent a vision of these unclean animals set down, as it were, from heaven in a sheet. He told Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And he says, not so, Lord, I've... I've never taken any unclean animal. I'm not about to start now. And the Lord says, do it. So what you have called unclean, I declare clean. Now he was not referring, of course, to animals only. God was pointing out to him that he had a plan for the Gentiles as well. And soon there was a knock on the door downstairs. And some men carried Peter to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius, where God told him to preach the gospel. And to Peter's shock, when he preached the gospel, not only Cornelius, but his entire household were saved. And they received the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And Peter was amazed, and it started to change his heart. It was not just Peter in the New Testament that had racial and cultural problems. There was a group within the church called the Judaizers, who were teaching that faith in Jesus is wonderful, but to that you must add keeping of the ceremonial Jewish law. If you're a man, you must be circumcised. In essence, for a Gentile to be saved, they taught that he first had to become Jewish, and then it was possible for him to become Christian. Now, there was a whole big meeting about that in Acts chapter 15, and we'll come to that in a moment. But it's not just in the New Testament. In church history, we have found racial struggle and strife. In fact, one of the great problems in the Middle Ages, in my opinion, in the church was anti-Semitism, this prejudice against Jewish people that existed in the church. And, and even to this good day, we're not so naive to believe that there's not a problem with race in the church. 
I grew up in Southern Baptist churches in the South, as many of you know. And in many ways, some of the most wonderful and generous, kind, tender-hearted people in the world. But even as a child, I was struck with the incongruity on one hand of a group of people claiming to love Jesus and being so generous and kind and hospitable in so many ways, yet from those same people, racial animosity and obvious prejudice. And it was justified in their eyes and they justified it with their lips or tried to. In fact, sometimes they even quoted scriptures out of context, of course, to try to justify their racism. Even those who weren't racist themselves often simply overlooked and ignored that sin in other people with a, a certain expression that I've heard so many times, that's just how it is. Well, dear friends, dear friends the Bible calls it sin. And so we must. And like all sin, the solution to racism in the church is the blood of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying here in verse 13. He says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Those he refers to here who were far off, he's speaking of the Gentiles. When this terminology was first coined, it had to do with literal geographic proximity to the temple. The temple was where God's people came to worship. And so the presence of God in their mind was associated with the temple. And so the Gentiles lived a long ways from uh, the temple and the Jews lived closer so the Gentiles were far off and the Jews were near but certainly metaphorically it means those who were outside the covenants that were unfamiliar with the Old Testament and, and the law. And so our first point today on the outline is this, Jesus breaks barriers. He allows people who were far away to come close in other words. Look at verse 14. Speaking of Jesus Paul says, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There's a saying in our culture that goes like this, good fences make for good neighbors. You've heard that, right? And that may be true for a homeowners association, but it makes for a divided church. The church is not to be divided up and fenced off according to, to any kind of barriers. It's in the church that people are most equal or should be. I made the comment to someone the other day that there is no more level ground on planet earth than at the foot of the cross. Because everyone there is the same. Sinners who fall short of the glory of God. So rich or poor, black or white, educated or uneducated, all must come to Christ on his terms. And that is through humble contrition, through brokenness, through repentance and faith. Jesus breaks down these barriers that have existed for millennia between the races. And here's how he does it. He, he says he makes of both groups one. We had a beautiful wedding here last night in this room. And the husband, the wife, the bride, and the groom stood before me. And I announced to the congregation that had gathered that it's God's will that when a husband and wife come together in holy matrimony that the two become one. And we understand that in the context of marriage, but that also is true in the context of the church. He says in verse 14 that Christ made our peace. He is our peace, in fact, and he made from both groups, those who are far away, the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews, into one, that is one church, one body, and broke down the middle 
wall of separation. Now we know that first and foremost, Jesus made peace, or the possibility of peace between sinners and God, right, at the cross. We were separated by a distance that we could never hope to cross because of our sin. God is holy and we're not. And we had no hope of ever being reconciled. But God, Paul says, who loved us, gave Christ in our place. And through Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins, he made peace between sinful humanity and a holy God. And to signify that, do you remember what happened when Christ died on the cross? That veil, that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from the very top to the very bottom. This symbol of separation showed now that there was no need for that any longer, that man could come and to have intimate, close fellowship with God the way that he did before sin entered the world. The second thing that Jesus did on the cross is he abolished enmity. He abolished enmity. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. Now, enmity is not a word that we use every day anymore, but at one time it was. We use derivatives of it today. But enmity is a noun and it's synonymous with hostility. It's synonymous with aggression. It's synonymous with disunity. And so Paul says at the cross, Jesus abolished, did away with this long-standing hostility and enmity between the races, which was, he said, contained in the law of commandments and ordinances. Now, don't get carried away there. Some people like to say that when Jesus died on the cross, he abolished the law completely, meaning that we no longer have to follow the Ten Commandments. Now, there's a good word for that. It's called antinomianism. It means against the law. It's the idea that a person claiming to be a Christian can live any way they want to and still be a Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. He's speaking here not of God's moral law, which does not change, He's speaking of the ceremonial law. You remember that they had added custom and um, legacy after legacy of these minutiae of ceremonies to the law. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene, he, he talked about it in terms of a burden that the Pharisees and the scribes kept laying on the people, though they themselves were not willing to carry that burden. And Jesus says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, he says, and my my burden is light. But Jesus never abolished God's moral law. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. In fact, he raised the bar on it, didn't he? He said, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man looks upon a woman in his heart to lust, he's committed adultery. You've heard it said of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, if a man has unjustified anger against his brother, he's guilty of murder. I mentioned earlier that council of Jerusalem that happened in Acts chapter 15. Here is the real issue. This group of Judaizers were saying that before you could come to Christ, you have to first become Jewish. And it was laying this great weight and burden upon these Gentiles who wanted to be saved 
And it broke the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he was the one primarily who was taking the gospel to these Gentiles. And so we know that these people must have been Baptists because they called a committee meeting. And it was decided that they would meet on such and such a day in the city of Jerusalem and all the dignitaries came, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and the great elders of the church. Would the gospel continue to be salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or would it be grace plus the law? And dear ones, that's one of the most important questions that's ever been asked. And this solution is one of the most important in human history. Listen to what happened. Verse 6, Acts 15. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referencing Cornelius in that upper room vision. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart testified to them, that is the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also If you're a Gentile here today, you ought to scream amen to that. (laughs) Because had that question not been answered correctly, we would not have a true church today. But it was answered correctly. Then and now, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That core truth is put to the test in every generation, in a multitude of contexts, and God always preserves a remnant who hold on to it and will, the Bible teaches, until Christ returns. Jesus has abolished this enmity between the races. And we're not to let ceremony, we're not to let tradition separate us in the church because we are now one. And that leads us to our third point, that is reconciled races. Look in verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself... He might make the two, that is the two races, into one new man, thus establishing peace. One new man. Now this word in the Greek, new, is not chronologically new. So when your car wears out and you go get another one, you say, I got a new car, right? That is another in a series of. This word is very different from that. It means new in kind and type. That is, it has never existed before. It is the prototype. And so he says, what happened is you had this group of people called the Gentiles. You had this group of people called the Jews. Jesus, through his cross and through his blood, brings them together into one new body and creates something totally new that has never existed before. And we call it the church. This is God's plan since before the foundation of the earth. He calls it one body in verse 16. In fact, the rest of the book of Ephesians talks about the body of Christ, which is the church. Christ is our head. We are the various component parts of the body. Well, by what means did he do this? Look at verse 16. That he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And so if you're tempted 
to hold bitterness against a person because of their race that's different than yours, if you're tempted to be prejudiced or hard-hearted or cold, you'll have to go through the cross to arrive at that position. Because at the cross, Jesus declared once for all that God's grace is sufficient for all people. In fact, the Bible says what God is busy in the world doing today and has been since before any of us were ever born His eternal redemptive plan is that from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation, he's bringing together people from far and near into one new body called the church who have one purpose, and that is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, that's all well and good, but we don't live in the rural south. We don't have a racial problem in Dallas, Texas. You're not that naive. How does this apply to our church? And honestly, as I look around, I I don't sense racial tension in our congregation. But here's what we know. The Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can hope to understand it? Every sin that is capable of in the world is capable of in here in the church. How do we guard against this? I think by remembering at least three or four things. Number one is this. God's grace embraces all people. God's grace embraces, and I should say, all sorts of people and kinds of people because that's what it means. This is the thing Peter had to come to in Acts chapter 10. If you've got a moment, just turn there and I want to see you to see how Peter's heart was changed. Remember, Peter's heart in the beginning of his ministry was cold towards other races. God does a miraculous work through this vision And here's what he comes to in Acts 10, 10, 34, the summation of this event in his life. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now. (laughs) Implied there is there was a time in my life before when I did not understand this. But now that the Lord has opened my eyes, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. And the implication of that statement is, so we should not either. It's what Paul says in Romans 2, 11, there is no partiality with God. Therefore, there should not be partiality in the church. And the second truth we must remember is that the cause of conflict in all relationships is sin. And so if we treasure the unity of this church, like I believe we treasure the unity of this church, we'll be on guard against all sorts of disunity, including racism. And where it is found, it is to be dealt with as any other sin. How does the church deal with sin? Through confession, through repentance, right? And restoration. And ultimately thanksgiving when the sin is confessed, repented of, and forgiven can be a source of great joy when a person or a church that has been heretofore known for racial animosity becomes known in the future for peace and love. Third thing to remember is this, Christ alone is our peace. There there are a lot of well-meaning people in the world who think by drawing out a well-thought-out roadmap or putting together a think tank of the smartest and intellectual most intellectual people in the world, that somehow we're going to bring an end to racial animosity and all the hostility in the world. In fact, I was reading just this week about uh, Thomas Jefferson 
and the age of enlightenment. And Jefferson was one of those intellectuals of his day who believed that if we simply educated people enough, if we simply placed them in the right set of circumstances, then everyone would meet their potential and that we could close the prisons. We would have no need of a military, no need of a police force because everyone would just love one another. <laughs> which ignores man's real problem, which is own sin. The cause of all sorts of conflict in the world, including racial animosity, is man's sinful heart. And the only solution to that sin, of course, is the applied blood of Jesus. Fourthly, we need to remember that the Lord is doing something amazing, not only in the church with the big C out there in the world, he's doing something amazing here in the local church. I'm speaking of First Baptist Church of Keller as it relates to bringing together this beautiful tapestry of people from different backgrounds. This week I just took a piece of paper and a pen and I began to write down the nation of origin of some friends here in my, this church, not my church, the Lord's church, our church. And, and I'm sure I will forget some, forgive me. I, I thought of some friends we have here from India, some from Nepal, some from Japan. We have Vietnamese Christians here, Mexican Christians, Argentinians, Koreans, Jewish, German, Romanian, Chinese, South African, Egyptian, Canadian, Filipino, Navajo, Albanian, Irish, Cuban, Sudanese, Budanese, and Polish, and even a few from Mississippi. <laughs> and the wonderful truth is that when you come and you join this church, you don't have to become just like everyone else. You don't have to, to lay aside your past or your culture. That was decided at the Council of Jerusalem. You simply have to come as you are, confess your sins, and then the Lord makes from all those different groups one group called the First Baptist Church of Keller who uses all of those experiences and those dialects and those cultures now into something beautiful, not disjointed, not disunified, into one beautiful tapestry, a picture of the body of Christ. Those things that once separated us, now God uses to bring us together. Isn't it a beautiful irony that the means that God accomplishes this is the cross? We saw in Passion Week just a couple of weeks ago, the pain and suffering, the brutality of the cross, something that man designed to separate us from our lives and from our families, something that man designed to destroy, God uses to unite, something that man desires to, designed to kill and take life, God uses to give eternal life. What a great God we serve. Let's give him praise as we pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are grateful for this word today that is timely. As Lord, we live in a time of disunity and strife and turmoil. It seems to be getting worse all the time. Husband against wife and race against race, political party against political party. And 
Father, we're so grateful that we serve the Prince of Peace. And we know, Lord, the only true peace in the world comes when a person repents of sin and receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. He first makes peace between that sinner and a righteous God through his blood on the cross. And then he makes it possible for sinful humans to have peace with one another in the context of the local church. Lord, I thank you for the unity and peace that we've enjoyed in this congregation for many years. And yet, Lord, we're to be wise. We're to walk circumspectly. We're to be on guard all the time against any possibility of disunity. And Lord, we know that Satan would use any means necessary to destroy the unity of our church, including racial strife. Lord, I thank you that you are bringing into this community and also into this congregation people from every culture on planet Earth. And Lord, continue to do that, we pray. Make us look like heaven is going to look here on Earth. Lord, I pray you do this not for our namesake, but for your own glory. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.